0: All right, everybody. It is uh, good. I was going to say it's good to see you, but I don't see you, but I know you're there. And you see me. So it's good to know you're there. And <clears throat> it's been a little bit uh, since I've done a video. I have several important announcements to make. Real, well, two important announcements to make. I want to tell you about my secret passion project, something I've been working on for a little while. I'm going to continue to work on it for a while before releasing it to the public. But I'm going to announce it today. This is going to be the big announcement of what the passion project is all about. And I'm going to tell you about uh, how I'm going to shift my upload schedule somewhat in the near future or as of today. So welcome uh, to the Tuesday live stream. Uh, My name is Mike Winger. I'm a pastor in Southern California. I like to help people learn how to think biblically about everything. My goal is to not just tell you what to believe but to try to walk you through why we believe that, why we ought to believe that, how does it work, asking hard questions about our theology and about our apologetics in the Christian faith. So um, let me tell you about my passion project. Uh, Those of you who follow me for a while, you know that I'm very, I'm calling this my passion project. You'll get why in a second. I'm very passionate about the Passion Translation. The Passion Translation is a new translation that was put out by Brian Simmons. He's the, he's the sole translator of the work. He's had some assistance from others, but it's like 99% his work. And it's got a lot of, uh, I think, very serious issues with it. I think that it's got a lot of problems with it, which is why I've made content. I have video content online, like three videos, I think, where I deal with it in a lot of detail. But it's not enough. You see this thing selling millions and millions of copies and believers just a lot of the time are not aware of how much it radically changes the text of scripture um, and makes them think that the Bible is saying things that it isn't saying. In some places, adding theology into a text that doesn't belong there. In some places, adding words without alerting the readers that he's added words or phrases into the, the Bible that are not there in the original language. In other cases, saying that he's appealing to the Aramaic Supposedly original Aramaic when there is no original Aramaic that he can be appealing to and so this becomes very problematic But here's my problem Uh, It came to my attention more I became more alerted to the problem when I got an email from a pastor and the pastor emailed me saying hey We've watched your videos on the passion translation And i'm in dialogue right now with the other leaders in my church and we're trying to figure out if we should use this translation or not do you have any other resources other than just you telling us that it's a problematic translation and the examples that you give? And I'm like, I thought I gave some pretty good examples, man. I thought I really did my job. I, I was careful. I, I didn't overstate the issues. Um, I'm not trying to uh, blast Brian Simmons, the author, or something like that. I'm trying to be as careful as possible. But I realized we need more. We need more. And the problem is this, that scholars who have like the credentials to look at a translation and say, Don't use that, guys. These guys are not generally paying attention to the Passion Translation. They're not interacting with it. They see it as just this sort of uh, weird kind of translation. They're not really giving it the time of day. But I, by God's grace, am in a position where I can actually get the attention of scholars because of the platform God has given me online, because I can reach people, large numbers of people online. I can create a bridge between the scholarship and the normal people. So I figured if I could get scholars to evaluate and produce a significant number of papers dealing with the Passion Translation, then we can help the people who are really heavy in their thinking. They want a deep analysis of a translation, and we can also help those by popularizing it on my channel who won't go that deep into the literature, but they want that grounding and that foundation in their answer. So if if I haven't confused you yet, here's my plan. My plan is to hire a number of well-respected, and I mean well-respected scholars, and to have them each evaluate different books of the Passion Translation. They're going to each write papers on their evaluations, five-page papers on each of those books, and then I'm going to give you those papers for free. You won't have to pay anything. You'll be able to, I'll host them on my site or whatever, and you can just read them all totally free, but that's not enough. In addition, I'm going to do short video interviews with each of these scholars where they summarize their... As objective as possible their conclusions about the Passion Translation. That'll be in one video where there's multiple interviews from different scholars dealing with different books in the Passion Translation. I think that is going to be um, the kind of resource that when someone gets it they go, all my questions are answered. I don't need to know anything else about this translation. I'm good to go. I think that's significant. I also think it because it's coming from different scholars who all have credentials in their fields and they've even specialized in the books that I'm assigning to them to do because it's coming from all these different guys, you can't think that it's the bias of one individual because this is the thing. Brian Simmons in his circle, what they tend to do when he gets criticism is they tend to think, oh, well, that guy's that guy's just got an ax to grind against Brian. That's the real reason why he's coming against this translation or that person's just not spiritual. They don't believe in the gifts or something like that. I mean, I, I believe in the gifts, so you can't apply that to me, but that is the accusation that comes out. So here's what I've done. I've got so far on board. Here's, here's the public announcement of it. I have Craig Blomberg. Mark Strauss, Daryl Bach, Trimper Longman, and Nijay Gupta, and a couple in the wings who haven't said yes yet, but they're thinking about it. So I have, I have so far five really well-respected scholars. If if you know scholarship at all, you guys, you know these names, right? These, I'm just blessed that they've said yes, and they're going to do this project. Um, Blomberg is doing First Corinthians. Mark Strauss is doing Luke and Acts. Daryl Bach is doing Ephesians. Trimper Longman is doing a Song of Solomon, and he's already written his paper, um, and so has Blomberg, both of them. I've read their papers. I won't share them with you publicly yet, but they did a good job. <laughs> and I'm not controlling what they can say or can't say. I'm just asking them to provide their scholarship, and I'm going to pre- present it to you unfiltered. Um, so uh, that's this is pretty cool. Um, because of the ministry God's given me, because of the platform he's given me, I'm able to actually... And maybe I'll do this in the future with other projects. I can actually pick a topic that's under addressed with scholarship and actually hire some scholars to address the topic and break it down in a way that's accessible to the normal person. Because I love that. I love when the bridge is built between that scholarship and your your normal person. So that's, that's my passion project. Um, I'm hoping to have it done in June or early July. I've given the scholars till the end of June to finish their papers. Then I have to record their interviews and then you know pull all the video together and put all the papers up and just make sure everything's working right. So this has been like a side project I've been working on here and there. I'm gonna continue working on it and I'm excited about the end result. Um, here's another reason why we, I wanna do it this way. The, the few scholars and I mean there's only like two or three who've even mentioned anything about the passion translation in sort of an official capacity And they've all critiqued it pretty heavily They've all said some pretty negative things about it But generally what happens is and I'm just going to be shoot straight with you guys Brian Simmons the author of the passion translation he'll go and he'll change um, He'll change the translation so that it can dodge the criticism of the scholars But why do I call it a dodge because let's say that they say look the passion translation has a, a million problems Here's three examples and they offer three examples. He'll change the three examples, but he won't change the problem throughout the translation. So this means that an individual paper presented by someone who's in the know, it it just, it misses the mark because six months later, there's a new edition of The Passion Out and it doesn't have those three verses that he used. But by having scholars analyze multiple different books, showing that there's not just a few weird verses, but there are pervasive problems with the translation, that's, um, that's gonna get the job done, I think. So that's that's my plan with the um the passion translation. <laughs> I see rock and roll is like how many how much coffee did you drink today? Uh not enough, but I'm about to fix that. Hold on. No, it's still not enough. I'll have to off to work on that. So I'm excited about this. Um and I wear my excitement on my sleeve. That's the, that's the kind of person I am. Now, the the other thing I want to announce is <clears throat> that, oh, and by the way, all of the papers, all of the video stuff, it's all going to be free. It's all going to be free. The people who support my ministry, and, and I'm not appealing for more support. God's providing, and thank you so much uh, for those who are making this ministry happen. Uh, that that enables me to produce free content, and that's my goal. All the content I produce is, is uh, available without cost. Now, the next thing I want to announce, before I go to your questions, because I'm doing your questions today, you guys can go ahead and put them in the live chat. Make sure to put a, a capital Q and uh, Sarah Zimmerman's gonna gather your questions and I will try to answer several of them today, although it may not be quite as long of a stream as you're used to. The second thing I wanna announce is sort of a content strategy for how I'm producing content online. In the past, I felt like I had to produce um, uh, two videos or more a week, two, preferably three a week. And part of the reason for that is because I I just wanna get content out, right? I wanna get content out that would bless people, that would help people that would help them learn how to think biblically about everything, address tough issues in a thorough way. But another one of the reasons for producing content at a certain rate is because I'm trying to take advantage of the algorithm online. And with YouTube, it helps to produce content pretty quickly, uh, to frequently put out content. Now there's a downside to that. And the downside is that sometimes I'm dealing with topics that are really complicated. And I want to study a lot more before I bring you a teaching on the issue. But because I have this deadline every week, these two videos of, and they're not just random little videos, they're two significant teaching videos a week. Because of that deadline, sometimes I'm producing content and I feel, man, I wish I had more time to prepare this. I could have made it better. I could have made it help more people in the long run. I could have, by reducing the quantity of content, I could have increased the quality of the content and thereby increasing the long-term ministry impact of the content. Well, I I think I'm going to be shifting towards doing that. And Part of it is because there's these big projects that I've wanted to do forever that I'm just having a hard time finding uh, The ability to study for these big projects with the schedule the way it is Case in point. I'm studying right now for a long very careful teaching on marriage divorce and remarriage This study is complicated. This is an issue where there's a lot of scholarship written on it There's a lot of um, books written on it and I am so like in fear that i would teach and get get it wrong in some way and thereby harm somebody in their real life because this hits real life more than most issues do marriage and divorce and remarriage and so i've given myself the time to just slow down with how much content i'm producing to allow myself to read book after book and article after article and study the passage again and again a third and a fourth and a fifth time and look at these different issues very carefully and thoughtfully and i am personally blessed i enjoy it i enjoy getting to slowly move through and thoroughly cover such a complicated issue and it is complicated you might not think it but there's so much stuff on it and i'm getting into this stuff and i'm going man when i do finally get to teach this hopefully soon here it's going to be that much better and and more thorough of a teaching that helps people more and the long-term blessing and ministry of that video is going to be much higher than if i had rushed it out a week and a half or two weeks ago when i originally wanted to teach the topic and as I think about the list of topics that I often want to do, I'm frequently saying no to issues because I don't have time to study before the next video is, like, due. So for my content strategy online, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna go to go uh, to a loose upload schedule, which means I don't know when my next video will be because I want to spend more time preparing it. I'll prepare it, and I'll put it up when it's ready, and I'll allow myself time to study things carefully, fully, thoroughly vet at issues, and then finally come out with a teaching that I, I can really feel good about, feel like I've really represented the Lord and represented the Word well, and then I think will have a much better impact in the long term. In the meantime, if you're thinking, Mike, you're not making enough content, I want to see your stuff, I just want to encourage you, I've got over 300 videos online at this point. I feel like I've reached a good point to say, look, here's a massive library of back content that you could go back and listen to and you know you could listen to my stuff more than once. I, I, I jam pack so much stuff into one teaching that hopefully you could find benefit in hearing it more than once. Um, I think that you can. Not to mention I'm not the only guy out there who you can listen to. So this is my current plan. Um, I'm interested in your feedback, how you think this affects you. This means that I, I, I'm not going to promise that I'll have a weekly live stream every Tuesday or that I'll have a, a new series in Mark every week. I'm just going to slow down and and fully prepare things now some weeks it'll mean that i put out two videos in a week because the issue i'm covering is much easier and i can prepare it and get it out other times it might mean there's some indetermined period of time while i'm just sort of hitting the books really studying things thoroughly so this is this is my agenda moving forward i feel very good about it um i think that long short-term ministry wise it'll hurt my youtube channel it'll hurt the number of views i get it'll hurt the amount of um growth that i can have in a a short period of time but long-term ministry wise i'm producing content that i intend to have an impact in people's lives for years to come i want it to bless you in five years in 10 years in 15 years i don't just want it to get you through this week if that makes sense they're both valuable things but i think i think i know what where my gifting is and my calling is in this regard so um let's see here uh sarah when you have a chance send me over some of the first questions you've got I'm, i'm just about ready to start answering those yeah, that <clears throat> that's my intention. Um, in the meantime, I am continuing to f- to finish up and polish off the this study on marriage, divorce, and remarriage in the Bible. Um, I've been covering issues like Talmudic debates on the between the Hillelite school and the Shammaiite school of these just Jewish debates in the first century about marriage and when it was okay to get a divorce and the issue of remarriage. There's like weird things you just don't know when you're reading the Bible, like. Roman and Jewish law actually required divorce in the case of adultery whereas Jesus seemed to imply that it wasn't necessary even though it was permitted and there, there's a big difference that goes on there uh, reading you know what um, what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 7 about divorce and in, in, in Romans chapter 7 the uh, the debate over Exodus 21 has some interesting stuff about divorce in it and almost nobody even talks about it and so these are some of the some of the things that we're covering yeah so i appreciate that i see tiffany says uh sounds good mike When you good content it's worth the wait and i i hope so that is (laughs) that's you know what that's my vibe as well i know i know and i don't know if you notice you probably do but i know when i produce videos and content and i go man if i'd only had three more days to just marinate and sit and prepare and study and vet all that stuff i could have i could have covered more i could have covered it better and i think i don't want to look back five ten years from now and think i just did that a hundred times um Yeah. All right. So we have some questions. This is from Chris Herndon, who says, what is your view um, on the death penalty? Is capital punishment still valid today? Some think the sword is just authority. Thank you for your ministry. Um, Okay. So my view on the death penalty starts in the Old Testament. And what we notice on the death penalty in particular is that when God gave them, Uh, the first mention of the death penalty he mentions it in the affirmative in the in the affirmative sense in which if somebody commits murder then they will be killed they will get the death penalty and so let me uh let me find the text for you it's in genesis chapter 9 and we can learn something from it because in genesis 9 when the death penalty is mentioned it's before the law of moses the, the death penalty is being mentioned to Noah and his, descendant, his descendants, which means that this is like divine permission for the death penalty that goes across mankind. In fact, it even sounds like a responsibility of governments to... Inf- this is what it sounds like to me, to enforce the death penalty, specifically in the case of murder. So <clears throat> here we go. Um, God says to uh, Noah and his descendants, Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. As I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your life blood, for your life blood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Now, this is the phrase here that I want to highlight. God says, like, I'll require a reckoning, but he requires it from his fellow man, meaning that it's society's command or task to enact the death penalty. It's the, the fellow man is the one who's supposed to take the life of the murderer. Then it says here in verse six, whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed for God made man in his own image. And it gives us not only what will happen, but it gives us the reason for it. So whoever sheds the blood of man, that's the murderer by man shall his blood be shed. So human society is, is to, uh, is to enact the death penalty. And then it gives the reason why, because God made man in his own image, man being in the image of God, killing a man is a strike against God in his very image. And it's a huge issue with God such that he actually considers a society in a sense guilty if they don't take care of the murderer in this case. <clears throat> that to me is a straightforward reading of Genesis 9 and it predates the law of Moses. This is Noaic, it's not Mosaic. It comes to Noah and his descendants. Now later we see the law of Moses also gives the death penalty and we're not under the law of Moses, so we don't think that we are supposed to take that law and translate it into all of society in that in that straightforward sense. There's applications and there's principles, but we don't have to do that. Um, <clears throat> now, the other verse that you did mention, so I, I think in general this is a simple answer. Yes, the death penalty is appropriate. Now, this um, I'll go to Romans in a moment, which is the other verse that you mentioned. But the... Um, the uh, the next discussion that we often have in our culture is what about when someone's not really guilty? What if someone's falsely accused of committing murder and here? You know, we, we have to have guaranteed guilt. You can't just I think they probably did it right there needs to be a justice there But it seems to me the death penalty is entirely correct if the man actually committed the murder, right? If it's a straightforward he committed a murder, then there's the death penalty. It's different if it's manslaughter um, It's different if it's self-defense that's a whole different scenario now in Romans 13 it says let every person be subject to the governing authorities for there's no authority except from God and those that exist have been instituted by God therefore whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed and those who resist will incur judgment for rulers are not a terror to good conduct but to bad Um, would you have no fear of the one who's in authority then do what is good and you will receive his approval for he is God's servant for your good But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. So the question you had, the second question you asked was, um, is this phrase, the sword, referring perhaps to just like authority in general and not the death penalty? And I think I agree with you here. I agree with it. It refers to authority in general. The the government bears the sword, meaning it can enact painful penalties upon you. It has an authority in your life. And so don't do what's wrong. (laughs) You know, that... It goes on to say that the, the government is God's servant, right? An avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. So while I agree the sword is a general concept of authority, I think that under that umbrella of the sword is also the death penalty in some cases. This doesn't mean government's always right. doesn't mean government enacts the penalty correctly. But it does mean that government has a, a, an ultimately a mandate from God to... To bring justice and righteousness and equity into the lives of the, of the governed of the people. So yeah, not a popular view in our culture today, but I, I don't I don't know rationally why it's not popular. I understand it's not popular, but it makes sense. It seems biblical, and it seems entirely appropriate to me. Brother Love has a question. Um, oh wait, I have a, hold on. I'll come right back to Brother Love. Uh, Blaze Cazares says. How many times was Jesus anointed during the during the week of the third Passover? There seems to be a difference with the anointing of Bethany when comparing the synoptic to John, uh, synoptic gospels to J- the Gospel of John. Uh, Blaze, I'm not I'm not sure off the top of my head that I can answer that question. Um, I'll come back to the normal screen here. I don't know. I don't know the answer to that question for sure. I, I would I mean my, off the top of my head I want to say oh, it was one. But when's the last time I looked in this and carefully thought about it? I don't know. Sorry about, about that, that. I can't, help, can't give you a better answer. Brother Love says, Looking at uh, Colossians 3.25 and 2 Corinthians 5.10, will saved Christians who endure to the end be punished on Judgment Day. Okay, let's look at those verses. This has to do with what happens to Christians on Judgment Day. And you have two verses in particular. Colossians 3.25 that says, For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Um, let me back up a little bit this is in context of um, uh, of servants and masters and employees and employers that kind of context right it says bond servants obey in everything those who are your earthly masters not by way of eye service as people pleasers but with sincerity of heart fearing the Lord whatever you do work heartily as for the Lord and not for men knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward and so the, in, the future for us is this inheritance and that inheritance is, is, is heaven and earth. We inherit all things with Christ. Um, then it goes on to say, you are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. So the the believer is to receive an inheritance. And here I think the wrongdoer is referring not to Christian wrongdoers in particular, but just wrongdoers in the world in general. And they will receive judgment without partiality. So that, that verse I think is talking about a, a non-believer's judgment in verse 25 that's my reading of it that's my understanding now the other verse I think was 1st Corinthians that does talk about a believer's judgment 2nd Corinthians 5.10 it says for we all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body whether good or evil now that implies that there's something I receive what is due I receive what is due Potentially um, Something evil. I've done bad things like I receive bad things um, This is talking about our, our our judgment before the the judgment seat of Christ now in my opinion the The way that this works for believers is different than non-believers So the punishment for a for a non-christian when they stand before God is perfect justice for their sin that is an exact and equal punishment measured out into the person for their sins. The, the, the reason this doesn't make sense for Christians is if I was to receive that punishment for my sin, I would go to hell. Like I would be apart from God for all eternity. But because I'm in Christ, I see that Christ has received the punishment for my sin. And there no longer remains any punishment or a sacrifice other than Jesus for that matter. So what could this thing that I receive be? I'm receiving something in the body for what I've done in the body. Rather, um, I receive what is due for for what I've done in the body, whether good or evil. And I think that has to do with another passage that is often used um, to relate to uh, purgatory. Um, uh, let me see if I can find the exact verse. Yeah, First Corinthians three, fifteen. Okay. This is talking about a believer's judgment. I'm going to connect this to 2 Corinthians. I think these are talking about the same kind of thing. And I'll back it up a little bit to give us some more details. Okay, Paul's talking in this context about um, how him and other people are are workers and doing ministry. They're like, they're like farmers doing ministry and the people they minister to are like God's field. And that one day God will come and judge their works, whether they did good work for the Lord or bad work for the Lord. And... Here he goes on with this analogy in verse 10. He says, according to the grace of God given to me like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest for the day we'll disclose disclose it because it will be revealed by fire. Now let me let me show you what's being revealed. What's being revealed is, by analogy, the the kind of service you brought to Jesus. Did you build with gold, which is really primo? You served Jesus the best you could with silver, which is good, not as good as gold, but it's very good. Is it precious stones, which are very highly in value high and valuable? So these first three are 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 good service to the Lord. I've had pure ministry. I ministered in love. I ministered the truth of the gospel. I ministered biblical truth to people, and I, I really glorify the name of Christ in their lives. But the next three are bad. Wood, hay, and straw. Well, you want gold, silver, and precious stones, or would you like wood, hay, and straw? These are the three bad things. This is people who are true Christians, who are just doing bad work for the kingdom. They're just not serving God well with their lives. Then in verse 13, He talks about what will happen when these either good works or not good works, when they're judged. Each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each has done. So there's fire. Now fire is going to burn up wood, hay, and straw, but fire won't burn up gold, silver, and precious stones. And this is the judgment we receive. As believers, I stand before the Lord and for that which I did, Uh, which was in service to God which was pure it's like it goes through this testing of fire and it remains and it's like treasures in heaven ways I can say look I honored you Lord but the wood hay straw the ways in which I compromised in my walk I compromised in my service to God I built with wood hay straw it's burned up and it's gone but what happens to me right That's that's the work being tested not the person being tested that's the it will be revealed by fire that's the work not me what happens to the person that's in verse 14 If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss. And he he will suffer a loss. Like you get no benefit. There's no treasure in heaven for the work you did for the kingdom because it wasn't really for the king. It wasn't really honoring to Christ. But, right, he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Now, some try to say this is about purgatory. I actually have a video on this topic. Literally a whole video on how this verse is not talking about purgatory. You can can, uh, look that up. If you type Mike when you're in purgatory, it'll probably come up. But, um, but the man is not saved because he went through a fire as if the fire saved. No, he's 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 saved. He's fine. But it's as though there was a fire that burned up all of his stuff. So he enters into heaven. No rewards. No rewards. That's the idea. So, what did the first passage talk about when it was saying believers will receive what is due? I think it means they'll have the loss of all the labors that they had. They'll have no treasures in heaven for the service they did to the king. I think that that's my understanding of it. Um, So it's a good reminder to us uh, as believers, um, if you were tested right now today, how much of your work would be gold, silver, precious stones, and how much of it would be wood, hay, stubble? Am I really serving the King Jesus with my life? Is my heart really all about him? Or have I gotten in the habit of living a different kind of life? And one day I'll find that there's no fruit in it. But I'm still saved. My salvation is secure in Christ. But there was no fruit in my life. And for those who love Jesus, we don't want to live like that. Uh, Black Tuesday Films has a question. As a young Christian, how do I deal with a worry of death? Um, I think that, that I would say that's a, a thing that young Christians and older Christians have to deal with and everybody has to deal with is a worry of death. Um, I think this is the heart of the gospel. I mean, the very center and core and heart of the gospel of Christ is salvation from death. If Jesus rose from the dead, I have nothing to fear in death. That's the end of the story for me. That's, that's the conclusion. His tomb was empty because I will be resurrected too. He's, he's alive. I'll be alive. You know, any man who believes in him, though he die, yet he shall live. That my salvation just is salvation from death and judgment and penalty of my sin it's salvation from all of those things so that Christianity is itself the solution to death and it's the only solution. I don't know anybody, anything else and I remember um, uh, being at a funeral one time there was a funeral for uh, an atheist and it was a, it was a sad affair. They were very careful because they didn't want any religious feeling stuff at the funeral service. But they didn't have anything comforting to say, and so it was. I was there um, uh, releasing doves. I used to release doves at funerals, a side job I had while I was doing ministry. I've had lots of side jobs, and they wanted the doves to be released, and they and they read a poem, and the poem was it was it was painful, and I was just praying for the people. I'm not judging them. I feel bad. I want them to have the hope that we have in Christ. But it was just so sad to see how empty it was, and how how there was no real tangible hope there were just cliches and as much as people try to sometimes mock christians for having these like christian cliches the crazy thing about christian cliches is they're actually true they're not cliches you can say it like a cliche but that's that's you you're the one that's that's empty that's a cliche the the truth of christianity that don't worry they've only gone to be with the lord don't worry they've they've died but we'll see them again like these things are actually true on christianity but, uh, but apart from Christ, I don't know what hope people have. So I think you should get back into the gospel. You should remind yourself of the hope you have in Christ. You should uh, read up on, on the lives of faithful saints. Maybe read the biographies of faithful saints. Uh, look again at, this, at the account of the death and resurrection of Christ. And know that just like the disciples and everybody that were hopeless and fearful, that you may feel that way looking at death. But Jesus' resurrection changed their attitude and it should change yours as well. Um, Solomon Dalberg says, have you watched David Pawson on the subject of marriage and divorce? I think he would be a good resource. Um, I have not watched David Pawson on that. Um, I've I've looked at lots of guys, a lot of different people. And um, especially I've been looking for sort of the more theological minded writers who have interacted, written books on the topic, um, published papers on the topic. I've been looking at those guys a lot. So, um, but I'll, I'll look into David uh, Pawson as well. Nicholas Yakum says, um, Hi Mike, awesome work in American Gospel. Oh, thanks. Thanks, Nicholas. You know, I, I was very honored uh, and surprised to be asked to be part of American Gospel, the, the second film that they did. I liked the first film. I thought it was l- largely wonderful. And the second film, I was a little surprised by how strong the Calvinist message came across in the film. Um, I was surprised by that. I didn't think that that was going to be the case when we were recording it (laughs) and I'm not a Calvinist, so Uh, but I think that the film has a lot to offer there's a lot of good value in it and it interacts with um, popular snarky uh, progressive Christianity really well (laughs) so I think that's good Um, now you said um, how do you handle a convo with someone who believes to hear directly from God says unbiblical things and won't listen to biblical correction well, it's a little tough to answer that kind of question, Nicholas, because I, I don't really know the real details, like the, the nitty-gritty details of a relationship like that. But if if, if your description is thorough, that they um, they believe they're hearing directly from God, yet the things they're saying are unbiblical, and they will not listen to correction from the Bible, I think that you proper steps would be to go to them with a leader, with a godly leader who can help you, and in, in, you already tried to rebuke or correct them, would help you in that, go with a leader, and then after that you can distance yourself from that person if they, after multiple admonitions they will not listen to you I don't know what else to tell you beyond that Nicholas, um, that person is self-willed they can't be corrected even by scripture they're clearly not hearing from the Holy Spirit if they're saying things that are unbiblical and you might not spend the rest of your life arguing with that person but rather pray for them and and let them go Um, forgive me if that counsel doesn't apply to your situation you know your situation better than I do just based off those three little lines. That's my thoughts. Chantal uh, Berger says, I've been facing so much confusion about my salvation. Can you do a Christian, a new Christian Q&A again soon? Um, Chantal, um, I'd be happy to do a new, a new believer Q&A again in the future. So watch for that on my channel. I'll try and make that a priority. Anna Bosheer says, do you disregard self-professed prophets or prophetesses? if they give one prophecy which doesn't come to pass as in Old Testament times, or is it different now? Also, are unfaithful prophets of the Old Testament the same as New Agers now? I'm not sure how to answer the second question. Um, Unfaithful prophets of the Old Testament the same as New Agers. I don't know if I can answer that question, Anna. I'm sorry. But your first question is a real puzzle for me as well. Okay, under the Old Testament, if a prophet came and he announced that something was going to happen and it didn't happen, it says you shall not fear him anymore. Like you just, you don't fear him. Don't, don't worry about what that guy says anymore. You can, you can scratch them off your list as someone who speaks for the Lord. Now in New Testament times, we, we have prophecy going on. We have Agabus. He offers a prophecy. We have different prophecies, but there's, and there's, and there's no example in the New Testament of a failed prophet. Although some say Agabus failed. I think that this is pathetically bad Bible study. No, he didn't fail that you just wish he did in some cases, and some guys know who I'm talking about, but, but there are times nowadays, transport yourself to the present day, where someone says, I'm speaking in the name of the Lord and nothing, nothing they say happens. They get one wrong. They get two wrong. They get three wrong. Then they get maybe one right. What are we supposed to do with that person? Now, my person, my personal position is I do not fear them. If you get one wrong, I don't, I don't trust your discernment that you're hearing from God. I don't know how else to do this, to play this game. I just don't know how else to do it. Now, it doesn't mean that I th- therefore go and say you are, you are a false prophet. You are therefore um, a heretic who deserves to be rejected in every way. I give some leeway to a believer who thinks the Holy Spirit is speaking to them, but they've, they've instead tuned into their own heart. And then they just can be corrected and learn from it. If they do it consecutively, then then I may actually take stronger stance against them. But yeah, if I'll, I'll tell you a story. A friend of mine was part of an Assemblies of God church. And he, he had a visiting um, prophetess. In their circle, this woman was considered a prophetess. And she was, you know, they had music playing and she was going around the room and she was offering like words of prophecy from God, so to speak, or so, so she claimed, to different people in the room. And she came across one couple. Now she didn't know they were a couple. She doesn't know these people. She's never seen them before. But what she sees is she sees a black man and he's standing there holding a white baby. And so she turns to the man and she says to him, this is a true story. My buddy was there. She says to him, one day you will have a child of your own. God is telling me one day you'll have a child of your own. Now what she didn't know, but what everybody else in the room knew was that that man was the father of that baby. He just had a a white wife and the baby was more white. Like it just didn't look like him, but that was his baby biologically and What happened next is what shocked me because what do you think is the right thing for a pastor to do in that scenario here's my thought now i've had time to think about it maybe in the in the moment you would freak out and be like what am i supposed to do my thought would be i'd stop i'd say stop the music stop everything get the microphone say i want you to know um you know our sister here who we love she just prophesied falsely over brother whatever you know and that is his child but she said such and such and that's not true so I want everyone who's heard a word from her to dis- disregard it and not to trust it. I don't think she's speaking from God. Wherever she's speaking from, it's not the Lord. Um, let's And then I'd maybe give her an opportunity to repent. I think that you, how else can you do this? If you're going to open to prophecy, then you've got to open to judging prophecy. But often in, in circles, it's we're split. We have circles who are not open to prophecy. All they do is judge it. And we have circles that are open to prophecy and they never judge it. But I think if you're going to be open to it, you have to judge it. So, yeah, if someone gets something wrong, I don't know how I can regard them as a prophet uh, in the f- or as prophetic in the future. And this goes for me too. If I think I'm hearing from God and I find out later that I was wrong, then I can no longer believe that my impression that God is speaking is correct. So I take a pretty strict stance on that. Eric Justice, what are some good books or resources f- to use for historical, cultural, socio social, social, social context of the Bible when studying the word. Um, Let's see. uh, One interesting resource for the New Testament is uh, by Craig Keener, and it's the Bible background commentary for the New Testament. Bible background commentary, Craig Keener. And that's an interesting resource because it's not going to give you a lot of commentary on what that text means. What it will do is whenever a verse has some sort of relationship to say rabbinical debates in the Talmud or interesting information about tax laws in Rome or something like that then Craig Keener will will put that in that commentary Um, now don't if you use that resource don't make the mistake of thinking because the Romans thought this therefore that's what Paul's writing about that's not necessarily the case you have to take all this stuff with a grain of salt and use wisdom but there's like one interesting resource for that particular uh, task Pedro Centrin says, do you think there are gaps in the genealogies in Genesis 5 and Genesis 11? That's a tough question, Uh, Pedro. I'm not... um, I'm not sure. So, let's... Let me talk you through this. Um, We have... We have... um, Especially Genesis 5. That's going to be the more sticky... uh, Sticky issue to work through. What you have is... um, Long ages, long lives, but they're specific ages, right? And you know, so and so lived this long, and then had this son, and then died, and then that son lived this long, and had that son, and then he lived a length of time longer, and he died. Now, the ways that some people have tried to work this out is they said, well, maybe um, those numbers aren't literal. Maybe, maybe those numbers, something else is happening here. And one of the ways they do this is they think it's on a, I think it's called a sexadecimal system, which is um, a six they use they count in units of six instead of units of ten like we do. So they'd be like one two three four five six one two three four five six, instead of one to ten and then eleven to twenty. Um, there is some reason to think that this might be the case, but I still don't know that that gets us anything other than a straightforward reading of those genealogies. Another way to interpret these is to say perhaps uh, Adam lived this long and he gave birth to the line that led to so and so in which case we'd be saying and, and, and in, in the Jewish sense of a person being sort of in, the, in their father even before they were born they'd be more flexible with the way they use genealogies so that Adam lives a certain period of time or let's say take a late, later one Enoch lives a certain period of time and gives birth to I think it was Methuselah that maybe, maybe Enoch lived and gave birth to the line that produced Methuselah and so we're really skipping untold numbers of generations others that's one option of trying to find more time in there while still being biblically faithful still interpreting it literally another option is the um the view of it as like archetypal i'll use the term it's my own term archetypal history and this is something that uh william Lane craig has been pushing a lot recently he calls it mytho history i think it's a a horrible horrible name i think they should call it archetypal history but nobody nobody listens to me so um so anyhow, what it means is that it's, these, are, these are real events that happened, but they're, they're presented, and I'm going to offer my way of interpreting his work here, as an archetype. So that we, while it's a straightforward genealogy, it's not meant to say these are literally the ages and literally the only individuals in between. It's, it's, it's much more loose than that. It's like a way of remembering history in a summarized fashion or something like that. I know I'm probably butchering his, uh, his work when I say that. So I, I encourage you to check out his work on your own. He's, he's working on a book on it right now. So I, what, what is my opinion? I don't know. I, I just don't know. I'm kind of still have a lot of questions about some of the stuff, especially in Genesis, that I'm not really sure. I think there's a few possible options of how to interpret it. I haven't settled on one, and uh, I realize they're important questions, and maybe one day that'll be the issue I chase down until, it, until I get to the end of it and then pr- produce some content on it. Uh, James Garza says, uh, if a recently elected pastor's unwed and underaged daughter is pregnant and he hid it prior to his election, how should this be addressed? Um, I would be, okay, let me just say this. This sounds like a real life scenario you're talking about, James, uh, the way you describe it. I think that um, if a pastor was hiding things from the congregation in order to achieve a title in the congregation, then I would fire him and I'm, I'm sorry, I'm not at all trying to be rude or mean, it's not that that particular deceit was the worst of deceits, it's that it tells you something about his character. Do you mean, pastor, that if you have compromises in your life, you'll hide them from us rather than being accountable to the church? Well, if that's the case, I don't really think we want you to be our pastor. What about 10, 20 years from now? What else will we find out? It just speaks to character issues. Uh, he has to be above reproach. So... So I think that that's, that speaks to deceit. Whether they could have worked worked through the pregnancy of his daughter or not is is a question you never can answer because he was deceitful about it in the first place. So, for, but just take that as the two cents of somebody who's not involved with that situation that may be much more complicated than what you just mentioned, and maybe my advice doesn't apply. Uh, Lonnie Friedrich says, "Can you give your thoughts on Dominion theology?" Um, only briefly to say this, that I think dominion theology is incorrect. I don't think that we're to take over the world. I think that there's a, I do personally believe that there's an actual millennium coming where Jesus returns but there are those who believe that the the ruling of Jesus is now and he's ruling on earth ultimately through the church and so the church is to kind of like take over the world. I think that that's an incorrect theology both prophetically, the eschatology I think is wrong, but I also think it leads to weird things in culture and in practice. And it leads to um, church trying to r- run government instead of us being the salt of the earth, so to speak. So that's my short, short response to you on that. Um, Tala Rabadi says, Is the staff and rod in Psalm 23 a sign of the cross? Oh, that's interesting. So in Psalm 23, it talks about um, your rod and your staff comfort me. This is the shepherd's psalm. Speaks to, you know, if the Lord is my shepherd, I will not want. He makes me walk in, uh, leads me beside uh, still waters. Makes me, leads me to green pastures. Suddenly I can't remember the psalm. Uh, Psalm 23 though speaks about his rod and his staff and how they comfort me. And how he anoints me with oil and my cup overflows. The reason why I would not take this to refer to the cross is because the rod and the staff in the psalm are shepherd's instruments. And that would be like an actual rod would be like a shorter stick, like a weapon. And then a staff would be like a walking staff, a, a longer stick. Now you can say that the the cross involves two sticks, so to speak, but they're they're not really like a rod and a staff, right? The, they're two pieces of wood, and you, maybe there's some connection there, but it seems like I don't see a way to connect it to the psalm in particular. The function of a rod and a staff with a sheep is either to protect the rod to protect and drive out the enemy, as well as to potentially be used on the on the on the the sheep if. Needed, and the staff is his walking staff, and he maybe used it for other things as well. Uh, I don't see how that functions in a way like the cross. So, so it's an interesting observation, but I don't I don't see a lot to commend it. And um, yeah, this will be the last one for tonight, guys. This is from John Douglas, who says, uh, "God bless your ministry. Thank you, John. Um, What's your advice on a breakthrough from God?" In revelation to breaking free from all habitual sin i'm gonna read this question again i'm not sure if i can understand it what's your advice on a breakthrough from god in revel in relation to breaking free from all habitual sin and following god with everything you have thanks mike okay I, i read revelation for some reason at first um breaking free from sin habitual sins what's my advice I'll just give you some some thoughts in the in the in the Old Testament there are revivals that happen when there is a return to God's Word and a return to God's Word with an intention that they're gonna actually do that stuff they've been ignoring all along and I think that sometimes these are the things that need to happen in our lives that we return to God's Word to the reading of God's Word to, to uh, actually sitting down just with your Bible and patiently to putting your phone away and just reading the Word of God and then being willing to obey it so that when you find it's reflecting that there's something in your life that is not in line with what you're reading that you're willing to say okay I'll cut that thing out but that has to do with the willingness of your heart another thing I'll mention is this sometimes we think of I need to stop this sin and we think of one sin we're battling with when in reality there are sometimes other issues where we're compromising it that we're completely ignoring and I think that if we address all of our compromise it helps us address those big issues it seems as though sin causes sin the you know when you feed the flesh in any way you feed the flesh and it's just stronger and more wicked and so if you cut off all areas of sin that you're aware of in your life that's the revival we're talking about and you focus your heart and your life upon the lord so i would say be reading the word uh focus any area of compromise deal with it radically in your life perhaps start by spending some time fasting praying seeking the lord those would be my encouragements to you. I, for what it's worth, I hope that it helps you, John. And um, Sarah sent me one more question, so I'll ask, I'll, I'll answer one more. Uh, Joel Joseph says, when using hermeneutics for interpreting texts, is literal, historical, grammatical hermeneutic the preferred option? I was told by a friend the, can, the canonical principle was used by early church fathers. I don't even know what the canonical principle is. I've never heard that, Joel. Um, someone might think I'm ignorant for never hearing it, but I think it seems odd that I've never even heard of it, at least not that I can recall. What's the canonical principle? Don't even know what that is. Um, so yeah, uh, hermeneutics is the art of, of understanding a text, you know, interpreting a text properly. That's called hermeneutics. And should you use the literal, historical, grammatical hermeneutic? Well, yeah, I mean, what we're when you say that, I'm assuming what you mean is, um, try to interpret it in its obvious meaning. It means what it clearly seems to be saying. That would be literal. Um, although we're not saying that everything's always literal. When Jesus says, you know, you, the Pharisees stray not or nap, but they swallow a camel. He obviously doesn't mean it literally. So, but when I use a plain-faced reading of the text, I, I realize he's using hyperbole here. So I don't take it literal when it's not literal. Um, Historical means that you're aware of the context. You're aware, oh, he's talking to Pharisees, religious leaders. He's talking, okay, when it says, let them be like a heathen or tax collector. Okay, well, we're not saying tax collectors are bad today. We understand it in the historical context, they were like rebels against Israel. They were like, they'd compromised against their people. And they were frequently embezzling or using uh, immoral means to take money away from their fellow Israelites. So they were seen as as, um, horrible people. Okay, so that's like a historical consideration. Grammatical, yeah you you have to look at the grammar is what what verb is uh, what verb goes with what noun and things like that, so these are all yeah, those are all important things you have to read it in context, another way to put it is read the Bible like a newspaper, not that anybody reads newspapers. read the Bible like you read anything else, like you read a book, you're aware of the paragraph, you're aware of the book, the chapter, context dictates your understanding of these things, and <coughs> if you're interested, you can get. Actually, books on hermeneutics, I just happen to have one here. I'm not saying this is the best one, Um, but books on hermeneutics that will actually guide you and try to understand your Bible better. One of the best things, though, that you can do to understand your Bible better is learn English better. I know you're thinking Greek, but if you went to to learn Greek, the first thing you would find out is that you don't know know English that well. (laughs) And so learning to understand English better. Learning to understand how a phrase works, um, how to dissect and, and diagram a sentence. These are really helpful things in Bible studying. And I think in the future, I was talking to the, the mods about this in our private chat. I think in the future what I'm going to do is I'm going to do a series of videos on how to study the Bible where I talk about some of these principles and break them down uh, a lot more thoroughly and a lot with a lot more application. We'll look at specific Bible passages and we'll talk about how... Um, how do you find the historical data to give you insight on these passages? Um, how do you look at this in context? where is it why is it, say frequently misunderstood passages we 'll see how hermen, proper hermeneutic would correct people from misunderstanding that so that as you open your Bibles you 'll be more equipped to without the aid of commentaries as much be able to just read and understand at least that's that 's a goal so for a future uh, future series but again that 's a project where I have to sit down and plan it all out like a lesson plan and maybe it would be fruitful for you guys so um, thank you I, I hope that I hope that today 's video is a blessing to you. I always wonder with Q and a videos what the benefit is on on the, on the other side of the video to the people that are watching it as opposed to prepared teaching moving forward i 'll be preparing <clears throat> more teaching and i 'll bring it to you as soon as it 's ready Just know that I am hard at work i 'm not taking a vacation i 'm just giving myself more time to prepare the content that I bring and um, and yeah, and we'll do that. And do the question tonight, we'll, we'll make the next Q&A that I do will be a New Believers Q&A to uh, best benefit those people who need it the most. I hope that it's a blessing to you guys. Thanks for joining. Thanks to my mods for being there. God bless you. And in the meantime, if I can give you a parting word of encouragement, it is this. Peace in the Christian heart, in the Christian life, it comes largely not from the circumstances you're in, but from the one who you trust with your life. And that is God. Who is worthy who is full of love and goodness and who in the midst of your hardship in the midst of whatever you're going through whatever is coming next that you can't even predict whatever horror awaits you know that glory awaits beyond that because in, you're in christ and because god has prepared things for you the things for those who love him that that you can't even imagine you can't even imagine And so, right now our comfort comes not from the world and the things that are going on but it ultimately comes from our hope and our faith and our trust in our king we have non-cliché hope it's such a glorious hope that to the world it sounds like a cliche because they don't realize how good it really is so rest your hope rest your faith rest your comfort in God in the scriptures in 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 the fruit that is one day coming as we wait upon him in the meantime in the meantime whatever you do do it unto the Lord for his glory because all of our works will be tested and we will have fruit only from that which we did for Christ So I hope that's an encouragement to y'all. Thank you so much. Thanks for joining me. God bless you.